Welcome to the Real View podcast, where Ohio realtors connect you to innovators and influencers, keeping you with the real view of real estate. Whether you're a broker, agent, first time home buyer, industry leader, or just happen to stumble upon our podcast today, you can expect to hear tips, tools, tricks, interesting information, and so much more from the experts in Ohio's real estate game. everyone. Welcome to today's episode of The Real View Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Wiley. Joining me as always is my co-host, Carrie R. Blaster. Thank you for being with me, Carrie. And we are so excited about our special guest today, Sam Quiones, who is the author of the book Dreamland. Sam, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be here with you guys. We are incredibly excited to have you here. I know it's taken a little bit of time to make this happen. COVID kind of put a put a, a kink in things as it did for a lot of other people. Yeah, it's um, a real bug, yeah. this thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're so glad to have you back on the podcast. And of course, uh, at our winter conference at the end of January, January yeah, I'm 26th. I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah, it's going to be wonderful. So what we like to ask all of our guests, although I'm not sure if they enjoy it, we enjoy asking them, what has been the best view that they have ever had? So can you tell us what has been the best view that you've ever had? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm about to let me think. The I would say that I remember seeing my wife smile the first time. That was uh, when I first met her. That was a not very very nice view. But in just in terms of vistas and so on, there's nothing like the Pacific Ocean uh, from the California coast. Just uh, gorgeous. I never get tired of it, and I uh, I love it. I can't really be too far away from it for very long. It's a very rejuvenating thing, even if you're not in the ocean, which I love to be, but even if you're just looking at it, you know, plus the view of when pelicans fly by, the pelicans are the best birds in nature, in my opinion. They're so interesting and, and fascinating to watch. So all of that, I guess, would be my best view. I love it. That's great. Something about the water that's just so calming, so peaceful. Yes. Yeah. We're, we're not as lucky in Ohio. We're kind of landlocked except for Lake Erie. You know, we don't, we don't get those ocean views. <laughs> hey, now, there is the Ohio If you have River. insomnia, the <laughs> ocean is this wonderful cure for yeah. insomnia. And I do, and I hate it. And uh, so when I'm at the beach, it's just like so relaxing. Uh, it's just magnificent. That's awesome. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, like I said, we had attempted to do this with you back in April. Um, and just to give a little recap for our guests, Ohio Realtors has been engaged um, in the opioid crisis in Ohio now for a couple of years. We're a member of the Ohio Opioid Alliance, which is a group of businesses and companies working to help combat the spread and use of opioids in our state. And we're incredibly proud of that. You know, for our members, opioid use intersects in the home and our members are in and out of homes all the time. We had problems at the height of the crisis where People were coming into showings specifically just to find drugs and medications, you know, and as you know, it's been a serious problem here in the state of Ohio. So that's what led us to, to get engaged. But I want to start talking about with you the book that you wrote, Dreamland, you know, and Ohio, unfortunately, plays kind of a significant role in that story. And I, I have to admit that when I read it for the first time, um, and I couldn't put it down, by the way. Thank you so much. It read like a like a movie, not one that you wanted to be true, but it but it read like a movie. And, and I remember being shocked to see, you know, Ohio be mentioned, you know, so many times and to have such a big part 
in this unfolding. So I want to hear from you about the book, but before we get to the content of the book, I want to hear why you wrote the book. You know, what, what led you to this? Well, I had lived in Mexico for 10 years and down there has got very interested in Mexican immigration and a variety of things. After those 10 years were up, I, I moved to LA, got a job at the LA Times. I'm from LA. So I moved back and within a year of me leaving Mexico, the drug war down there kicked off. Very sadistic thing. I'd never seen anything like it. I'd lived 10 years in Mexico freely using the buses all over the country. And it really was very easy to do that. And that didn't, was no longer the case. And so um, they put me on a team of reporters to cover the drug war out of Mexico. I was in LA, but still it, was, it had effects. And just the drug trade, which I never really paid any attention to when I was in Mexico, is really more about immigration. It was a far more important topic, I thought, back then. And so I got into that, and it was about midway, about a year into it, and I began to realize that there was this massive new heroin trade that somehow had grown. And I had no idea how, why. I mean, I had been a crime reporter for a long time before going to Mexico, and I just assumed heroin was this dead drug, passe drug. People used it in the 70s, and who really wanted to use it again? You know, And all of a sudden, they were seeing increased seizures of heroin at the border and all this. And I was like, what the heck? is? When, how could this be? You know? And that led me to find this story in the book about, uh, I began to poke around in and try to find good stories. And I found this one story about the Jalisco boys, this little town out of Mexico, Nayarit, Mexico, where everyone came and learned this kind of system of selling heroin retail, unlike most Mexican traffickers who were dealing really strictly in wholesale quantities. And so I found a lot about them. And, and, and that led me to, frankly, Ohio, because that was where they were really the first ones to figure out that there was going to be a new boom in heroin based on the explosion of prescription pain pills, narcotic painkillers for wide new treatments for pain and with seemingly endless refills that there was going to be one day a heroin. And they figured that out and they figured that out in Columbus. That's just by chance. They just happened to do that. They were the first ones. They did this back in 1998, by the way. So you can imagine they were onto this kind of way back then because it was a retail system and they knew what the people wanted kind of, you know, but I didn't know any of that then. I, I got into it and I began poking around and doing this story, but I still could not understand, even though I was writing about these guys, I couldn't understand why there would be this new brand new market for heroin because I didn't know what Oxycontin was. I'd never seen one. I didn't know what a Vicodin was. I, would, I had been down in Mexico during all that time and I didn't really know any of this stuff. And so it was only after I figured that out, I figured out that I was focusing on a small story. The real story was that there's an enormous transformation in American medicine of pain pills, narcotic painkillers for everything, you know, for things that were where, was, where they were not needed, but it was more than that. It was like huge amounts of the stuff. You use it and then get a refill and get more and more and more. And so all of that led to the problems I think that we've had today, which is too bad because those drugs are actually magnificent drugs and they have a very, very key role in medicine. They just, the, that role is just as not to be in everybody's medicine cabinet across the country. And that's where we were heading, uh, we would already achieve that really by the time I got to this, this story. So I saw that this was a major story. It was coast to coast. And number two, that, that no one had really written the book that tried to tell the whole story. And in fact, nobody cared about this. And I found this when I was writing the book, but I also found it before that. My agent took this book proposal about this, you know, this whole opioid problem to, I think, a dozen, maybe 15 publishing houses in New York and one 
publishing house wanted it, only one. Wow. A, a few years later, the book comes out, awareness begins to really grow. Right. And now it's like you get a line down the block if you have a book about this. There's a lot of interest in it, but there was none. Was there pushback or was it just not interested? I, I think it had to do with the fact that the very important part of this the, the most important part as a journalist, I know this, the most important part of telling the story, a story like this, is that you get the people most affected. And those are likely to be families. And f- those families all across the country, independently, but all across the country, did not want to talk about it. There was, there was like almost this unknown conspiracy of silence because nobody, everyone was ashamed, mortified that their uncle or their daughter or their husband had ended up, you know, three times in treatment and then died in a McDonald's bathroom toilet, that, that kind of thing. The, the obituaries were all mostly fabrications. Because no families were, were coming public, politicians found other things to focus their energies on. The media didn't cover it very coherently. Some did, a few did, but, but mostly that, that was not the case. And so there was just a silence all across the country. So nobody, my, my own in-laws were asking me, why do you want to write a book about heroin? And one, one actually, like, what is heroin, actually, you know? No, so it was like this enormous silence regarding this, I have to say. And I have to say that the, I, I experienced this firsthand. And so I saw the change. I lived it, frankly. And writing the book, nobody wanted to talk about it. It was very difficult. And I just assumed the book would die. And then the book came out. And I think what had happened was it came out as just as a critical mass of parents and families were being affected. And more and more of those folks were willing to be public. And so the book kind of pushed that along and was part of that extraordinary new awareness. Another barometer of all that is that when I was doing this, there were literally only three lawsuits against drug companies for this, much along the lines of the suits against the tobacco companies. And now I think there's close to 3,000, you know what I mean? So it's like the awareness has grown, but at the time, nobody wanted to talk about it. It's very much like the early days of the uh, AIDS epidemic. Nobody wanted their loved ones, you know, mentioned with HIV and the obituary and that kind of stuff. So that was part of it. How long did it take you to write it? You know, and what I'm hearing is maybe when you first started, did you know it was a book? You know, or did you? It was like this. How in the world? And, you know, did you go to Mexico to talk with, you know, this group? Or I'm really curious about that. You know, the way you describe their business model. It was fascinating. Yeah. And I loved, I loved hearing, you know, you would kind of toy in the book, you would toy between the two, you know, what was happening, you know, with the crisis and then what was happening, you know, with, with this Mexican group and, and getting right. established. And this was their American dream. You know, this was how they thought you know, they were going to make it. And I loved how you kind of told both stories and, and, you know, part of you is like, you're rooting for these guys because they're just trying to make a living, you know, granted they're right. doing it illegally and, you know, messing up people's lives. But it was fascinating, you know, how you kind of toyed between the two different stories of of their lives and what they were trying to do and then how it was affecting America on this huge scale. Yeah. And all of that has to do with, with, I think, I hope, the way I approach journalism, which is to leave out the adjectives. I figure if I write the story with as many details and facts as I can possibly accumulate and find ways to put into the book... They, I'll allow you to figure out what you think about folks. And I don't have to be sitting there going, tisk, 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 bad people. This is, you know, American civics, basically. We're all educated and you can read it and you can figure out your own approach, how you feel about those guys. So I would say that it took me, you know, it's difficult to say because I started writing the piece for the about the Lisco Boys for the LA Times and I wrote that piece. 
And that took me about eight months, something like that, nine months. But see, I already had spent 10 years in Mexico. I already had written two books about Mexico. I'd already written a lot about small Mexican villages. And that's what Jalisco is. And so I came with a whole background that maybe other reporters might have taken quite a bit longer. I had already lived it. I'd already written about it. I'd already been to those villages many, many times. Not to this one, but many like them. And so I knew a lot already. So that really shortened the curve, I, I would say. And then when I, I wrote the the uh, the story, it kind of stayed there for a bit. And I kept on seeing these headlines, heroin, opioids, that kind of thing. And then finally, I just found a great agent. And she helped me put together a book proposal. I began to realize it was a book, though, by the end of writing about the LA Times story. I began to realize this is nationwide. And this is something that's that not been told and my feeling was that there were a lot of parents out there that came to understand there were a lot of parents out there who had, had this problem. So the core audience for my book, I thought, would be parents who had been through this or families that have been through this. But as part of that, yes, I went down to Jalisco. I went down there for four days or something like that during their fiesta. They have a big fiesta and, um, in August called the Corn Festival. And, you know, and it's like it's like a middle class Mexican town. It doesn't look like there's no Maseratis, there's no zoos, there's no like the ostentatious displays of, of narcotic wealth that you see maybe in other places like Colombia you saw with Pablo, Pablo Escobar and stuff. It's more like this is a, a middle class business model, you know, a middle class drug dealing business model. So it'll allow you to get into the middle class. Not too often do you get way, way beyond that, although that does happen. And it's mostly that's the appeal. Everyone wants to be their own boss. Everyone wants to be able to buy a house buy a, a New Year's truck and get a girl to marry him. And so that's kind of like why people get into it. And the other jobs that they have available to them are all I can tell you from living in Mexico, the most dead end jobs you can imagine. Sugarcane, oh my God, the worst, probably the worst job other than garbage picker in Mexico is sugarcane harvesting and farming. Avocado work, butchers, bakers, construction workers. That's what these guys were. They were not Scarface. They were right. not the next Al Capone. They were right. just... And they weren't aspiring to be, and they didn't want to use violence. And, you know, you write how they intentionally yeah. avoided other markets so as not to have to deal with. Yeah, they didn't want to go into New York or Baltimore. Right? They didn't want to have to fight their way in there. That was, why should they? They had much better markets in Cincinnati and Charlotte and Indianapolis and, and you know, places like that. And so they were all about being quiet. There was none of the bling, no partying. Cops would raid their places and they'd find like a few sticks of Walmart furniture and a pile of unwashed clothes and maybe a little bit of dope. And that, that was it. And all the money had, had been sent back to Mexico already. But it was a method that had grown and developed. It was not something that someone came up with just from the start. It was one that shaped by trial and error. And also by the fact that they couldn't kill each other. They were all from the same town. And so when they faced competition, for example, I know that a bunch of guys, these crews, after a while, they landed in Salt Lake City. There was like three or four crews. They couldn't kill each other. They were stealing each other's clients. Well, what they could do is go to a find other markets. And so you find them, these guys intensely expansionary all across the country. And that's what led them across the Mississippi River to the guy who went there first, went, went first to Indianapolis and then Dayton, and then finally ended up in Columbus. And it was there that he saw the pills. And, and there he realized there was this big market waiting. And at first, he didn't want to share that with any of his buddies. He just wanted the market all to himself, but after a while, word spread, and pretty soon, so Columbus by year two thousand probably is like got eight or nine major crews uh, from Holy Scone working, 
And I don't think that's really changed too much in the next 20 years. This episode of The Real View is brought to you by the Ohio Association of Community Colleges. Ohio's network of community colleges provides accessible training that accommodates the busy lifestyles of aspiring real estate professionals at half the price of a traditional university. With convenient locations in every part of the state, as well as online options, Ohio's community colleges are your smart choice for pre-licensing education. For more details or to start the journey to a real estate career, visit the education page at ohiorealtors.org and then click on the pre-licensed course locations. So much of the book centers around Ohio and how it was really infiltrated, especially Southern Ohio, Port Smith, um, and then, yeah, into, into Columbus and those suburbs. Talk about what you learned about Ohio's opioid crisis, and was it different than what we see in the rest of the country? It was not different. It was among the first, you know. You have to distinguish Southern Ohio from the rest of the state because Southern Ohio has a whole lot more in common, in my opinion, with like Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, the Appalachian parts, than it does with, say, Cleveland or various other parts of the Lake yeah. Erie part, that kind of thing. And so I think what happened was the opioid epidemic began because you began to find pain specialists who wanted to make greater use of these pills, allying with pharmaceutical companies who made the pills and pushing this idea at pain conferences and in journals and various places. And then the pharmaceutical companies began to roll with it. And, and they had data about where doctors were already prescribing lots of drugs, not opioids, just any, they just prescribed a lot of drugs. They probably would be easy touches for opioids. And as it happens in that area, Southern Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, et cetera, Virginia, parts of Virginia, et cetera, maybe a little bits of Pennsylvania. That was the case. They had a lot of data showing that. And so they were down there very aggressively in those regions promoting opioid treatment for pain. And those regions happen to be in a lot of pain, physical pain from the work that's done, but also economic pain. And so it was there that it really kind of caught on in those areas that it really got a kind of caught on. And so Columbus is really like the northern tip, if you ask me, of the ground zero. And ground zero goes from there down to southern Indiana, Cincinnati, into virtually all of eastern Kentucky, Tennessee, virtually the entire state of West Virginia, and, and chunks of, of Virginia. And, and so it was already being affected, those whole areas. By 1998, Oxycontin was the key driver a lot of times because it was an opioid without any other abuse deterrent. It didn't have acetaminophen like Vicodin, Percocet have. It was just straight. And so it took people up to very high doses of daily doses. So you were very quickly were on 150 milligrams, 250, 200 milligrams a day. And then you get cut off or whatever reason, you, know, you begin to switch. And so people began to switch to heroin once they were up that, that high. The pills were very expensive on the street. In black market, they were like a dollar a milligram, 50 cents, dollar a milligram. And so it was very expensive for that. And so after a while, it began very, actually not too long after that, you began to see people switching. Oxycontin comes out. And I think my earliest, the earliest person I ever talked to was within two years of Oxycontin coming out, people were switching to heroin. Now that accelerated greatly in about 2010 to 15, right in there. But, but that was already happening. And I know a lot of people have already, we're already doing that. I've heard lots of stories of that, you know. And so Ohio was kind of in the midst of this, or Southern Ohio 
And of course, this doesn't, you know, the, the, the promotion of these pills doesn't stop at the border of Appalachia or the border of uh, the Rust Belt or the border of some native tribe. It keeps on going. And so as, as time goes on, you, you begin to see these promotion of these pills everywhere. And, and then whenever you get that, yes, these pills are magnificent pieces of medicine. And they do great things, and they do great things for people's pain. I had back surgery, and I've used them myself. But they have very limited uses, and they need to be limited. And we decided that they didn't need those limitations as a country. And so they just spread across the country. And, and it, what, what started in, in that ground zero with Southern Ohio, you know, began to spread to all kinds of places, you know, as wealthy suburbs, you know, that kind of thing. It wasn't just economic devastation. It was people who were economically very well off that, that got involved too. Yeah. I know that this work and this story is really personal to you and that you do work, you know, you were just talking before we hopped on here that, you know, some of your work with people who are, you know, incarcerated and you obviously have gone and spoken to families. And, you know, I think your story has given them words, you know, to articulate what they've gotten caught up in, you know, and maybe help them see that it's not an individual failing necessarily, you know, but something larger, you know, could you maybe speak just a little bit about the work outside of the book that you do? I, I would say that this has become a personal thing for me, but it's, it did not start that way. And I won't always be cognizant of the fact that I am really a reporter. I am not an activist. Really want to make that clear to myself above all, that I'm a reporter. And so I base everything on that. I try to find Stories. I try to tell stories that are as broad and as empathetic as possible, but I'm not here to lead a cause. That is somebody else's job. It's really, really important for me to always be. So I want to be always as balanced and as interested and clear eyed as I possibly can be. I have heard, you know, many, many uh, powerful stories people locked up, people whose families have, have lost loved ones and that kind of thing. And th those are absolutely stories that I want to tell, but I don't want to ever kind of lead the advocacy charge. That to me is really the job of somebody else. The journalist's job is not, I don't think, I don't think personally is that. The, the stories are more impactful when you decide that you don't want to be the advocate, but you rather want to tell a story and make it as point. And sometimes the person who has been victimized has a very a story that does not reflect well on that person. You have to be able to tell that, you know, and you also have to be able to tell those stories, as I said, without adjectives, without trying to milk the tears from people. I'm, I'm just like, don't, I don't do that. I just don't do that. I, I, I try my best to just tell a story and you educated American can figure out how you feel about it. So to me, yes, there is a lot of, you do get wrapped up personally in these things sometimes. When it comes to writing, when it comes to telling the story, I always want to be just the storyteller. And because I think that that's the role I've always wanted to play, but also it's a more powerful role than for me to go leading rallies or whatever, or, or, or telling people what, what the new policy should be. There are, to me, there are some obvious policy implications. They just become very, very clear. You can't avoid them. And I spoke to, I can, one of the more, more surreal moments of my life was when they they asked me to testify for the Senate, the Health Committee of the Senate. And the U.S. Senate I was like blown away by that. It was a bizarre thing. But but I told them, you know, I think yeah, we need like a kind of a Marshall Plan for American recovery in so many of these areas that need this, you know. But I'm not there to kind of lead that charge. It's, it's more of a professional duty to just kind of tell what I think I've learned. Well, you did a phenomenal job. 
you know, doing that. And I think, you know, that's evidenced by everybody immediately looking to you as the expert. I mean, you very quickly became like the expert, you know, uh, what is happening? That might have been the case, but it was because I think so few people were actually following this story, you know? It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So I know we're getting short on time, but I do want to touch on one last thing before we wrap it up here. Um, Living through the COVID-19 pandemic, um, how has that changed the opioid crisis or not changed? You know, I mean, I know just from reading news articles and certain things that I've come across, you know, that that some of the focus has been taken off of the crisis um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's not getting any better. And, and, you know, I think I just saw an article that Franklin County in Columbus uh, had 11 overdoses, you know, just a couple of days ago. And it's and and, you know, is it affected because of the pandemic? Because more people, you know, are in their homes and dealing with mental health issues and are more isolated than ever. And, you know, we're seeing some of these drug uses not only, you know, stay the same in this crisis, stay the same, but in some ways increase. No. Talk about how you think that this has changed, you know, the, the crisis that we're in or, or not change it. No, I think it's made it much worse for all the reasons you mentioned. People are alone. One of the things they tell recovering addicts to never, ever do is isolate, right? And so that's exactly what we've had to do. And so I'm really afraid to say, but I think I think this 2020, we will have something close to just a skyrocketing record of, I mean, make close to 100,000 people, maybe. I don't know. We'll find out in the middle of the year when all the figures are finally counted. But it, it just does seem to me that that's kind of what's going to happen. And that's largely because people don't have that personal connection. They do NA meetings via Zoom. It doesn't really work. Counseling sessions via Zoom, that doesn't really work. You know, there's all these people isolated and all these people who don't have anybody to revive them. You know, there's there's all these reasons why this is such a bad thing. I will say this, though, and, and it has made it worse, and there, there's, there's no doubt. But I will say this, though, that I'm hopeful, and maybe I'm naive, we'll see, but I'm hopeful that this pandemic will show us what the epidemic was already teaching us, which is that we need to understand that we're only as strong as the most vulnerable among us, you know, we are only as strong as this grocery store cashier, all of us, apparently, you know, or the tomato picker or the meat packer, apparently, or the paramedic, you know, or the nurse who's swathed in PPE and, and uh, helping the guy with the ventilator and so on. To me, I think there are huge lessons to be taken from both the epidemic and the pandemic. And they're the same. They're similar lessons, that they're only as strong as our most vulnerable, and that we have a self-interest, a personal interest in making sure that the weakest links are helped in any way we can. And I think also that we we have certainly learned from the pandemic, and I hope we're learning it from the, the epidemic, that we have done so much in this country to destroy community, ways of coming together, being together with others. You know, our neighborhoods are barren. We destroy or we defund things that brought us together uh, we don't fund them in the first place, you know, and I would hope that we would learn that there is an enormous price to pay for doing that. And that it's time now to begin to think of ways to rejuvenate community ties as bulwarks. These are bulwarks. Community uh, relationships are bulwarks against whatever the drug underworld comes up with next. And a lot of that's going to be synthetic dope you know, fentanyl, methamphetamine, it's not grown. It's not, it's not governed by the seasons. It's, you can make it, the supplies are ghastly and overwhelming. And I would hope that what we learn from both of these things is that the lessons are the same, you know, that folks who are the 
we, we need we need some kind of frankly I think it's what it's telling us is we need some kind of a universal health coverage really it's crazy to think of we give people employer-based health coverage at a very time when employers are laying people off you know that doesn't help yep. me even though I held my own my health coverage that kind of thing so these are kind of some of the lessons that I would hope people would begin to think of the lessons of both together and that they are similar and that they are connected and that when we do consider them and act on them I believe will be a healthier country and more able to defeat these pernicious effects of, of addictive stuff, whether it's legal or or illegal. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, I think I think about you know putting myself in shoes of addicts or recovering addicts and sitting. And I know how bored I am sitting in my house, you know, every day nonstop with, by myself. And I'm just like, you know, it's it's a miracle that these people are making through it because you're so bored. You know what I mean? I'm like, there's nothing to do. And, and I can only imagine your mind is just wandering to a million places. So I, I like your attitude, though. I like your positivity. I think there is hope for a better world, not only with the COVID pandemic, but also for this crisis with the opioids that we're in currently. So I love to leave it off on that note. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. This was fascinating. Um, I learned a lot. You're, you're so interesting to, to talk to. And luckily, we get to hear more of you in a couple weeks at our winter conference. So really excited about that. Uh, make sure to get registered for that. If you haven't yet, you'll get to hear Sam discuss more about the opioid crisis and what he's learned in his book, Dreamland. And also, I think uh, we were chatting before and Carrie mentioned that you're working on a follow-up to Dreamland. Right. And it has to do with what I was saying at the end there, that we are in a time when synthetic drugs now have replaced plant-based drugs. And that's really going to be the situation from now on, I believe, largely. And so, therefore, it is more important than ever. The book really deals with that, but also deals with stories of people looking to help like Matthew and the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew, you know, help the least of us. That's really kind of the point of the book that we need to be about looking for ways of of shoring up what is weakest in our community, what is what is needs needs help most in our community. And when we do that, that is our defense against a drug underworld. And frankly, a, a legitimate corporate move for legally addictive things like sugar and and social media and pornography and gambling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the bulwarks. That's the bulwark against all of that stuff that would would leave us isolated, addicted, depressed, beaten down, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's really the theme of the next book, which will be out later this year. I'm not sure when exactly, though. I'll let you know. Yes, please do. We can't wait. I'm sure it's going to be another another great story. Sam, thank you. So enjoyable to talk to you today. And we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too, guys. Thank you, thank you both so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohiorealtors.org slash The Real View and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions? We want to hear from you email us at podcast at ohiorealtors.org. We'll see you next time. This has been a Humble Pod production. Stay humble.